0: I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. As you're turning there, I want to tell you of a conversation. And I want to tell you of uh, a conversation I had recently. I want to tell you also of, uh, of a friend I had. Recently, I had a conversation with somebody about the events that took place on September 11, 2001. And uh, this person believed that they were not terrorist attacks. Rather, he believed that September 11th was a planned attack staged by the government. It wasn't 19 Al-Qaeda terrorists who hijacked four airplanes, drove them into U.S. buildings. Rather, it was the United States using remote control abilities and driving these planes into these uh, towers. After all, how could a guy in a cave deep in Afghanistan someplace orchestrate such a massive attack on America? In his theory... The United States staged the attack so they could gauge the war on Iraq, so they could gain control of the oil. Because you get the oil, you win the world. I go on much about what he talked about. But bottom line, it's a 911 conspiracy. If you type 911 conspiracy into Google, you get like a million hits. I researched it this week after talking with this gentleman, and uh, you'll find that many people believe that 911 was a large-scale government conspiracy. You can weigh it for yourself. I'm not convinced at all. But one thing that stood out with me is I had a conversation with this man where a couple things is that he spoke from a tremendous knowledge base. The knowledge that this guy had of everything took place on 9-11 was astonishing. He spent hours and hours and days and days just reading all this stuff. Knowledge, dates, times, people came off his lips just easy. Me being a novice in the conversation... Spoke very little. Second, I'm I'm convinced that this man believed these things deeply into his heart. And, And I could tell that anything that I told him would not change his view because he'd already considered what was said, considered the evidence and thought it was false. Finally, I was amazed how consuming these things were for him. Conversation that just that's where it drifted, right? You, you find that people talk about what it is they've been thinking about, what it is they've been reading about, and that's where the conversation drifted time after time. Drift away, and it came back, drift away, came back, drift away, and came back to this. He's got a burden because he's so convinced of these things. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt, he thinks that September 11th was a conspiracy. He needs to get the message out. I don't think he's right. But I was struck by how consumed he was by this message. As I thought about this conversation I had, I thought about another man I knew in seminary. Um, I remember taking we had at least one class together, went to church together. I, I remember his, his family used to sit right up front, just like the Hook family right here. at uh, Grace Community Church, John MacArthur's preaching, his family you know would sit right up front, front row, every time. Very interesting. I would even call this man a friend. I visited his home. He was good friends with his wife. He was on a church outreach soccer team with him. He played with his oldest child that I knew. He and I enjoyed good times together. He even attended our wedding. However, since seminary, this man's life has taken quite a bit of a turn. He began a small Bible study in his home and she was forced to teach the Bible each week. He began to see in Scripture verses like Psalm 19:104, which says, From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. <laughs> it's a great thing. It's all our heart ought to be. I hate every false way. But he's taken that verse and he has come to think that God hates every false way so that He is not tolerant of any false way in any way whatsoever. In fact, he continues to study. He's become convinced that unless you get your theology 100% exactly right, <laughs> i.e. agreeing with Him, you're a false Christian. You're not a believer in Christ. You are not truly converted. And, and as he studied, he began to find statements in the writings of other people which he disagreed with, and he found false. One of the teachers he identified was John MacArthur. And on several weekends, he went back to his home church and began distributing information. I forget whether it's tapes or literature or things like that. He was confronted by the elders, he was disciplined by the church for being a factious man, which he was. Now he's a leader of a cult. <laughs> Albeit it's not a very big cult. Last I knew it was probably about 20 followers just meeting his home Sundays. But he firmly believes his church is the only church that he knows of. He can't identify any other church that's walking in the way of Christ. have heard him ask that question before on the internet interviews. He cannot name another church that's following after the ways of Christ because they don't Walk. They, they don't hate every false way as he does. He can't identify even another person outside of his fellowship who's truly converted to Christ because he doesn't know their theology 100%. He can't identify anyone in history except from the Bible who's a genuine Christian because anybody he knows about what they believe and read, he always finds one error. As soon as he finds an error, he discards them as a false teacher. Oh, he holds out the possibility that there are other, some others in the world. Elijah... And his loneliness was told that there's a remnant of 7,000, which he says, well, there's probably a remnant out there, but I just haven't met any, is what he says. He holds that there might be some out there, but he hasn't found anybody. And that's why his fellowship's about 20 or so, because as soon as you have a disagreement, then you're gone. As soon as you disagree with anything, you are, are gone. And he feels the burden to get his message out. He often shows up big gatherings of Christians He can protest the speaker inside identifying as a false teacher and come and follow me instead. And and what's interesting about this is this man speaks from a tremendous knowledge base, a very bright man. The Bible flows off his lips more than anybody I know. Um, He can speak just a sentence or two. He can't speak a sentence or two without quoting some scripture, either from verbatim or the reference. He's familiar with the teaching of many in church history because he's gone through them looking for their errors. He believes in the things that he teaches. He's not a hypocrite in the sense that he believes something, but you know, is only saying something else. No, he really believes this from his heart. He has a burden to get this message out. Think about it. If you're convinced that only 20 people in the world, the few are going to heaven, and the, the many, 5 billion, everyone else in the world except for us are going to hell, wouldn't you have a burden as well? well I think he's a false teacher. In, in 2 Peter chapter 2, we come this morning to the portion of the epistle where Peter is addressing false teachers. In fact, this is the burden of his letter. It's the burden of his epistle. False teachers were infiltrating the churches, pulling people to follow after them. Peter spent the first chapter laying the groundwork, saying that we have everything we need for life and godliness in Christ. He said that we have evidences of what true salvation looks like. Verse 5-7. through seven. As we in our faith apply diligence to supply moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness, brotherly kindness and love. As these things work in us, we see that we are genuine followers of Christ. And that's how we make our calling and election sure, as he says in verse 10. He provided for us, Peter did, the sure foundation of our faith, the Scriptures. Speaking about how they, they weren't concocted in the minds of men. But they came from God as holy men, moved by the Spirit, spoke from God. And now in chapter 2, he begins a discussion of false teachers with these words. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them. Bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. The title of my message this morning is How to Deal with False Teachers. I think that's what Peter is getting at here in the first three verses. Now, this isn't the end all, end all of everything to do with false teachers. But it does give us some guidelines of how to deal with them. First of all, you need to be aware of them. Verse 1. You need to know that they exist. You will swim differently if you know that there are sharks in the water. Maybe you won't swim. Maybe you'll just wade. You'll walk more alertly if you know that you're walking in a dangerous part of town. And so also, will you be more discerning if you're aware that false teachers are present in the church at large. And that's Peter's point. There will be... False teachers among you, so be aware of them. Be aware of them. Now, it is an unfortunate thing here that chapter breaks at this point because Peter's making a contrast. You can see that with the first word, but, there in your English translation, he's contrasting the true prophets of verse 21 with the false prophets of chapter 2, verse 1. The true prophets spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The false prophets, on the other hand, spoke for themselves as they were moved by their own desires. And if you survey the Old Testament, you'll see there are many, many warnings about false prophets, how they would come. And you will see examples of many false prophets who actually arose. Moses warned the people of false prophets who would come and perform great signs and miracles. And Moses said, even if they come true, if they say, come, let us follow after other gods, other than the gods that you have been serving that you do not know. He says, do not follow them. Do not follow them. He's a dreamer of dreams. He's a false prophet. And though his miracles are authentic and genuine and proved, if they're telling you to follow from another God, Moses said, do not follow after them. In fact, Moses said, put them to death because he'd counseled rebellion against the Lord. So Moses prophesied these false teachers that would come. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel especially tell the false teachers that arose, the false prophets that arose In fact, Jeremiah lamented their presence among the people of God. These words in Jeremiah 23. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into fertility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, The Lord has said you will have peace. As for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say calamity will not come upon you. But who has stood in the counsel of the Lord that he should see and hear his word? Who has given heed to his word and listened? God says, I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. Well, that's a major characteristic of false, te- false prophets. God didn't speak to them. God didn't send them, but they went to speak anyway. Spoke from their own imagination. As Peter said, they followed cleverly devised tales. And in Jeremiah's day, the major message was, Peace! Peace! <laughs> Here all the time is uh, Nebuchadnezzar coming from Babylon. He says, there's going to be peace, there's going to be peace. And God had said, no, with your sinfulness, because of your sin, I'm going to carry you away in captivity. But they kept saying, peace, peace. And when Jeremiah said, no, no, there's not going to be peace, the people hated him. They threw him into prison. They didn't want to hear the good news. Instead, people wanted to hear the prophets say, peace, peace. Times haven't changed In the Old Testament days and our days, people want to hear what they want to hear. And people will hear what they want to hear. Paul told Timothy, "...the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away from the truth and will turn aside to myths." Ear ticklers. People tell them what they want to hear. And just as there were false prophets in the days of Israel so also were there false teachers in Peter's day and in our day as well. That's the point of verse 1. False prophets arose among the people of Israel back then, and there will also be false teachers among you in the church today. It's a nature of truth, right? Whenever there's truth, there's always error. Where there's gold, there's always fool's gold. Wherever there's genuine currency, there's always the counterfeit. Wherever there are diamonds, there are also cubic zirconiums. It's always the false that goes along with the true. Where there are genuine prophets, there will be false prophets. Where there are true, where genuine teachers, there will be false teachers as well. And notice here that Peter uses the future tense. There will be false teachers among you. Now in some sense, I think he's being prophetic. But in some sense, Peter's emphasis isn't so much upon, yeah, these people don't exist, but they will come. Rather, his, his emphasis is that They are around. In fact, we read in all of chapter 2 what they are like. They are around and they are coming to a church near you if they haven't been there already. They will come, so be ready for them. Be aware of false teachers. You know, when you read the New Testament, you, you can't read it without being struck by the number of times it mentions false teaching in the church. Time and time and time again. In like fact, one of the qualifications of an elder in a church, he'd be able to refute those who contradict the sound teaching of Christ. And much of the New Testament is written to combat the false teaching that was arising early days in the church. Second Corinthians, Paul addressed and combated the super-apostles who were leading people astray. Paul wrote Galatians to battle with those who were drawing people back into the law. As was the same book of Hebrews the book of Hebrews is written to try to persuade these Jews who are waffling and thinking going back in the Old Testament sacrificial system to say, No, your sufficiency is in Christ. It, it, was, it was written, it was preached so as to pull people back to what's right to combat the false heresies of the day. Paul wrote in Colossians to those who are being swayed by ritualism, asceticism, and legalism. All this is what you do, all this rituals what you say, all these things you stay away from are going to make you righteous. He says, No, no. It's Christ and in Christ alone. Second Timothy was a warning to Timothy to remember the fundamentals of the gospel, so that you're not carried away by the false teachers of the day. And Jude wrote his epistle with the express purpose. He says, "I wrote this to contend earnestly for the faith against those who were drawing people away." In fact, Jude is much like Second Peter chapter two. Such is the importance of false teaching. An entire letter devoted to false teaching. And note that the false teachers aren't there out there somewhere. False teachers are in the church. Peter says this there will be false teachers, a little phrase inhumane among you that is in the church. And ought not to surprise us, Jesus himself said beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Oh sure, they look like an innocent sheep on the outside. But just peel back the sheepskin and you'll see the snarling, ravaging teeth of a wolf. Seeking to capture other teeth cheap and prey on them. Paul picked this up, same terminology, when he warned the elders in Ephesus. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And Paul anticipates wolves coming up even from the eldership, so he anticipates them coming. See, when false teachers come into the church, they put on a disguise as a follower of Christ. The devil doesn't show up with red horns and a pitchfork and a pointy tail. We have that imagery built in our mind that that's not going to fly in the church. Rather, the the devil comes disguised as an angel of light. And therefore, it's not surprising that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. That's the idea here in chapter 2, verse 1. But they are in you and they are secretly introducing destructive heresies. They're not coming in and announcing themselves as teachers of heresy. They're rather coming in under the, guise, under the guise of orthodoxy, using the Bible as proof text for their teachings. These are professing Christian teachers. And as they game a platform, give some semblance of a following, their heresies soon begin to be manifested. If you know anything about the early church, you know the heretical teachings that were floated about the church early on. There was this, this era called Gnosticism, in which you go to God only through this secret knowledge. And there was much that was true about Gnosticism. There were some themes there that were right. But ultimately, it fell far short of Christianity. It, because fundamentally, it taught to synthesize Christianity and uh, the dualism of the Greek and Roman gods. And it messed with the person of Christ. Early on, there were a heresy called docetism, which denied that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. John wrote that, about that, 1 John chapter 4. He wrote about people denying that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh because people say that Jesus was just a spiritual being who just appeared to be real. Later on, the church began to flesh out the meaning of the Trinity. There came a heresy called modalism, which is there was one God, but He just manifested Himself in three different ways. Sometimes He was God the Father, sometimes He was God the Son, sometimes He was God the Spirit. That's wrong. It's one God in three Persons. Beginning of the 4th century, the main heresy of the day was Arianism, which rejected the full deity of Christ. Following that, after that was denounced, they said, no, Jesus is fully God. Then there were other errors. How can this God be God and man? How how can this be? And Apollinarianism, Apollinarius came out. He said that Jesus was half man and, and half God. That He had a body of a man, but a mind and a spirit of God kind of just put together rather than fully man and fully God. Less than 100 years later, Pelagianism came about because of the teaching of Pelagius who rejected original sin, rejected the sovereign grace of God in our salvation, believed that people are good, have the free will and power within us to live a righteous and holy life. I mean, these are some of the heresies, I think, that Peter was, was anticipating. And fortunately for us, the early church convened several times, developed some formal creeds, against some of these heresies. they helped to define orthodoxy today and so we don't deal with the same sorts of heresies they did in the early church. I think they were dealing with those because they deal mostly with the Old Testament and that's the apostles' writings came to be, trying to flesh that out, what the Bible taught. But such creedal statements haven't solved all the problems in church history. Heresies continue in the church which lead to damning of souls as people are carried away into falsehood. And you need to know that heresies exist even today. There are forms of Gnosticism and Arianism and Pelagianism that still exist today. They're alive and well. There are heresies that promise people health, wealth and prosperity. There are liberal heresies which deny Christ and deny the Scriptures. There are heresies in the church that call us to hold too closely to the law in effect than denying the cross of Christ. There are heresies that regard too much the works in our salvation so you need to do this, right? It's faith, yes, but it's faith and works. You need to work to get your salvation, right? There are rituals that people say you need to go through in order to be saved. All sorts of heresies. But let's look at the heresy that Peter has for us here in Second Peter. He says here in verse 1, false teachers will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. As I've mentioned several times in our exposition of 2 Peter, we have no mention of the actual teaching of these false teachers in Peter's day or maybe little mention of it. Rather, Peter's emphasis here is upon the way the false teachers are living. In weeks to come, we'll see how these false teachers were like unreasoning animals. Verse 12, they were doing wrong. Verse 13, they were reveling in their deceptions. They had eyes full of adultery. They enticed unstable souls. They had a heart trained in greed. Verse 15 speaks about how they've gone astray. Verse 18, they speak in arrogant words of vanity. They enticed by fleshly desires. They're slaves of corruption and entangled by the defilements of the world. And the key that Peter gives us in identifying false teachers is to look at their life. It's the life that authenticates their message in many ways. Or maybe better put, their life denies their message. They're not true. They're not right. That's not to say that we believe anybody who's coming along living a righteous life. I mean, if someone's living a righteous life and preaching error, <laughs> you, don't, you don't trust that because, oh, they're living a righteous life. You don't do that, obviously. But just say that Peter's point here in Second Peter is that those who live blatantly immoral lives can be regarded as false teachers based on their lifestyle, regardless of what good they say. That's why it's so important, chapter 3, verse 18, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the growth that we see in Christ, Christ working in us, that makes our calling and election sure to us. But these false church teachers weren't growing in moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, brotherly kindness and love. They weren't. They weren't growing in the Christian virtues which are obvious and manifest to those who, in those who believe. Rather, living lives of sin. And I, and I believe this. It's their, their lack of growth in Him gives us the biggest clue they were teaching falsehood. Something wasn't working in their life. Now, we see what wasn't working. It says here in verse 1 that they were denying the Master who bought them. They were denying Christ. Now, this does give us a hint into their heresy. Somehow, they were denying the person work of Christ. Maybe they were denying His humanity as the Docetists did. Maybe they were denying His deity as the Arians did. Maybe they were denying the supremacy of his sacrifice as the Pelagians did. We, we don't know. But you know what? So I look at this passage this week. I don't think that Peter is so much even talking here about denying the Master who bought them doctrinally. I think he's talking more about how they denied the Master who bought them morally. That is, by the way that they were living. Right? Their life denied what they were saying. In fact, that's the way the entire chapter speaks. It speaks about the lives of these false prophets. They profess to have a Lord, but by their deeds they deny Him. It's a thought that Paul gave in Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And there are people out there who say, yes, they know God, and they live wanton immoral lives in the closet on the back end. And we've seen that. We've seen preachers fall who professing one thing on Sunday and living another on the back end. Sounding good to the multitudes, yet living a horrible life. And I think that's what Peter's getting at. He talks about denying the Master who bought them. Mark your slave terminology. Christ had bought them, or so they professed that Christ had bought them. And now... They are to submit to their sovereign Lord. Right. I mean, think about it, as Christ has bought us, we are not our own. We are bought with a price. Remember when Paul said in 1 Corinthians six twenty, you have been bought with a price. Therefore he says, glorify God in your body. The natural outcome, consequence of being bought with a price is that we live for him. Second Corinthians five, verse fifteen. Christ died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We realize that and we embrace that, the fact that the Master is purchased with His blood. We live appropriately. We glorify God with our bodies. Out of love to Him. Out of devotion to Him. Out of faith, believing in Him. We submit to His authority. We obey His voice. We seek to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And I think these false teachers, instead of obeying Christ and submitting to Him, actually ended up maligning the truth of God with their lives and effectively then denied the Lord they professed. The book of Jude gives us further insight on this. In fact, turn over there, the book of Jude. If you read through Jude, it reads almost like 2 Peter. They are related in some way. I'm not sure if Peter had talked with Jude. they have been thinking about these same things. I'm not exactly sure, but the mere repetition shows how important this is in the Scripture. Jude speaks about these false teachers as well. And he says in verse 4, certain persons... Have crept in unnoticed. There it is, that secretive. They, they've crept into the church. They're not noticed, they're disguised. <laughs> Jude says, long beforehand, they were marked out for this condemnation. He says, they were ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And you see the exact same things here that Peter addresses. People come into the church secretly. They deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. But I think Jude flushes itself out a little bit. What Peter is probably talking about as well is that they turn the grace of God into licentiousness, they turn it into aselgeia, sensuality. Think about it. They don't deny the grace of God. They don't, but rather what they do is they distort the grace of God. They say, God is so gracious to forgive, I can live as I please. That's what they're saying. That's how they turn the grace of God into licentiousness. They're expecting forgiveness while desirous to live in sin. It's a little bit like the Roman Catholic who will go to Mass on Saturday so he can sin on Saturday night. That's turning the grace of God into licentiousness. And in the end, we actually see they don't understand the grace of God. Those who say where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Let us continue in sin that grace might abound. And Paul says to that, may it never be. You've not understood grace if you say, let sin abound so that grace might increase. Because grace calls us to submit to our Lord. That's what grace calls us to be. How should we who are slaves to sin still refuse our master? But that's what these false teachers were doing. Professing Christians who refused to submit to the Lordship of Christ in their lives. And that's their fatal flaw. So you can't have Christ as Savior if you don't have Him as Lord as well. So how do you deal with false teachers? You'd be aware of them. You'd be aware of them. Verse 1. How do you deal with them? Verse 2 and 3, eh? You flee from them. He says here in verse 2, Many will follow their sensuality. That's that same word that's translated in Jude for licentiousness. Many will follow their sensuality. The picture here, this word is often associated with sexual sin. Literally, it means a wanton, excess, without legal constraints, without moral constraints, no bounds for the sexual sins, no regard for the moral law of God. Twice in this chapter, Peter will use this word, he He used it down in verse 7 to describe the debauchery of Sodom and Gomorrah. He used it in verse 18 talking about fleshly desires. And such is the moral conduct of these false teachers. They pursued their own sensuality. They pursued their own lust. And the people loved it so. Notice, many followed them. Many will follow their sensuality i can have jesus and my sin count me in no repentance no demands upon my life i can live as i please sign me up see that's the type of jesus that many will follow but it's not the real jesus the real jesus calls us to repent matthew 4:17 unless you repent you will all likewise perish he calls us to repent. That's a, that's a, a change in your mind which should come to a change of life, a turning from sin and a turning to God. It's the core of the Gospel. It's the core of what we're called to do. The real Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and be ready, ready and willing to deny, to die for Him. If anyone will come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow Me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. The real Jesus calls us to give up all of our possessions, storing up treasures in heaven, not here upon the earth. When you present the real Jesus to people, Jesus said himself that only a few would follow him. He said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through that gate. But the gate is small and the, the way is narrow that leads to life and few there be that find it. Is it any wonder then that Peter tells us how many will follow after these false leaders? To have a religion where you can be forgiven yet live an abundant sexual sin and debauchery? message is easily received. Given a Christ who gives all, demands nothing. People love that. But people won't take the real Jesus. The, the real Jesus calls a narrow, difficult, straight, hard way of life it's a life of discipleship it's a life of love to Christ above everything it's loving the Lord our God more than anything else with all our heart all our soul all our mind that's what Christ calls us to a life that's like that a life that's pursuing that and my exhortation to you this morning is don't buy into the lie of these false teachers don't think that you can keep your Jesus and have your sin at the same time flee from them don't be numbered among them I love the story of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. This is like, you know, one generation later after the apostles. He he told the story of when he saw John in Ephesus entering one of the public baths. And inside the baths, the Apostle John saw Sorinthus. He was a well-known Gnostic. Well known false teacher. And upon seeing him inside, John left the baths saying, let us flee before the baths fall in. Serinthus is the enemy of the truth is inside. So he wanted to flee from them, wanted to get away from them, wanted to distance himself from them. And that's my counsel to you. Flee from false teachers. You see someone on the television that's teaching falsely and you know it's bad? Turn it off. Don't dabble in it. Just get away from it. You hear someone on the radio. Turn it off. You have a book. Set it aside. Don't read it. Flee from them. See, the life of a follower of Christ is not to be characterized by wickedness. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians 5. He said, Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And then he continued, here the deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Which, (laughs) describing these false teachers, he said, that's the deeds of the flesh, these false teachers. And then listen to what Paul says. I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Because the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 13, 4, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Christ repeatedly told the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, you can read them, every church, except the good churches of um, Smyrna and Philadelphia, He encourages them to continue in their faithfulness. The other churches, they were all told to Repent. And do the deeds or else I'm coming to you and I'm going to remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. He says, repent or else I'm coming quickly I'm going to make war against you. I mean, these are churches he's talking to. He says, I gave you time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent. Remember what you've received in heard, and keep it and Repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I came upon you. Be zealous and repent. That's what Christ is telling people in the church who had been duped by false teachers, like Balaam and the Nicolaitans and Jezebel. They've been duped by this, they've been following their morality, and Christ comes to church, he says, Get out of that mess. Repent. See, Christ calls his followers to follow him and not their own lusts. The path of your own lusts is the path of destruction. Now, don't get me wrong at this point. Don't get Peter wrong. Christ doesn't call us to perfection. He doesn't expect perfection. Well, maybe he does. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. But he knows, Psalm 103, he's mindful that we are but dust. He has compassion upon us. Rather, he, he doesn't expect perfection. He expects growth towards that realm. That's why we talk about First Peter, is know Christ and grow in him know the truth of the Gospel and be ever-increasing the traits of godliness as you know and love As you commune with Him, as you know Him better, you will grow in these things. But God knows our weaknesses and He knows our heart. He will help and strengthen us in our sin. And the cross does cover all of our sin. But it's interesting that who was, who was Jesus most happy with? He was most happy with the tax collector who repented, who in terms of practical righteousness had very little, but was heading towards God. Then he was with the righteous Pharisees who had everything, but were heading away from God. See, it's not a matter of righteousness or not, it's a matter of growth towards righteousness. But these false teachers had no righteousness and were heading worse and worse and worse. So they're not growing. They're false. Ignore them. Flee from them. See, there's a huge difference between one who who sins and hates his sin and cries to God for help as opposed to the one who sins willingly and joyfully and presumes upon the grace of God. There's a huge difference between those. One's a true believer seeking to to rid himself of this wretched body of sin and to love God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength. And the other's a false teacher presuming upon the grace of God. See, God delights in repenters when Christ came to earth, He said, I didn't call the righteous, but I called sinners to repentance. And I don't think the word repentance was in the language of the false teachers. As such, it says here in verse 2, the way of truth will be maligned. See, people the world over know what God is like. People the world over know that our God is a righteous God. People the world over know how Jesus lived. Many people, non-Christians included, look to Jesus and say, wow, He lived a great life. I like the way He lived. Because they saw the righteous life that He lived. People the world over know and expect us to follow and imitate our God. People will always imitate their gods. For the Romans said, gods were fighting and warring. It's why they always fought and warred. Hindus have mean and evil and vengeful gods, have mean and evil and vengeful spirits. It's just how it is. And people expect us to follow our God and to be like God. And God expects us to follow and be like God. Peter said, 1 Peter 1, 15, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. But when professing believers show no signs of righteousness but rather delight in wickedness. The way of truth is malign. As people speak badly of Christ. Isn't it true that whenever a big-name preacher falls, the, the name of Christ is blasphemed among the Gentiles? Isn't that true? The media gets all over it. They love it when a big-name preacher falls because they can say, well, if that's what their leader does, that's probably what the people are. This religion certainly can't be true. So let us go and eat, drink, and be merry and live like we want to live. And any time a pastor or preacher falls, even if it's in a small town, however far his influence goes, the way of truth will be maligned. We just know the big ones, but there are plenty of small ones. As people walk in the ways of sensuality, the truth will be maligned. And the implication of that is if you profess a faith in Christ, walk righteously. Live for Him. That people might see our love for one another and might know that Christ has been in us and dwelt in us, they might see that the only explanation for a life we live is because Christ has dwelt us and changed us and done His work in us. If we fail in that, the truth is maligned. In verse three, we also see another characteristic of them: greed. they 're in it for the money. Peter writes, "And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Later in verse 14, he 's going to talk about how they have a hearts trained in greed. And I think you've probably all seen this on television before you turned off the television. You've seen the, the preacher whatever, spend 10 minutes on his message and 20 minutes pleading the people for money. Saying, oh, if you give to me, then God will increase. You know, I think it's a verse in Luke 12, 48. You know, He'll give down, press shaken together abundantly. It will increase and overflow. So you just give to me and God will increase and overflow to your account. And you've got to think about that. Well, if you really believe that verse that when you give, you're going to overflow, preacher, how about you give to everybody else and watch God increase and overflow your account? These people are trained in greed. It's easy to tell a teacher is a lover of money. He talks about it all the time. The main emphasis upon it. Hey, give, give, give. Let's go. You see them, luxurious houses, driving expensive cars. The world takes notice and the world sees right through that. I mean, we of all people, followers of Christ, are called to live above the world. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, verse 11, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. We are aliens and strangers. We are sojourners here upon the earth and we are to live in that way. As false teachers contradict that and place their feet firmly here upon the earth, the way of truth is maligned amassing for themselves treasures in the here and now. Uh, Others see it and the truth is maligned. You ought to recognize that about a false teacher. You ought to flee from them. Well, you say, so if I flee from them, where do I flee to? people say flee to the cross, right? that's the only place that we can flee. Where there we find our, our joy, there we find our refuge, there we find our strength, there we find our forgiveness, there we find our hope. There we find our satisfaction. There we find our delight. That's what we desire is, is to know Christ. I mean, that's even what Paul said first in Philippians chapter 3. The main goal of his life was to know Jesus Christ. And that's what we desire. That's our hope. So you flee from the false teachers and you just flee to Christ. And one of the problems with false teachers is that Christ isn't the center of their theology. It's not. How do you deal with false teachers? Peter tells us to be aware of them, flee from them, and know their end. Verse 3, Peter writes, Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. These are words of assurance to his, his readers. It may look good for the false teachers today. They may amass riches, they may have big crowds following them, they may be conductors of big crystal buildings but it's not always going to be that case with everybody. They are, are living with this black cloud of judgment just waiting to rain upon their party. It may look like they're having a party now, but there is a, this cloud that's coming. They're, they're a bit like prisoners on death row. The date of their execution is coming, but right now they're enjoying the nice life. No work and they have three hots and a cot, as they say in prison. All taken care of. All the books they want to read and rest in ease. But their judgment is coming. The judgment may look like it's idle. It may look like it's asleep. God isn't striking them down like Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. He's not striking them down like Nadab and Abihu now. But His patience is perfect. And they'll be destroyed in time. People want to say, oh, God is sleeping, but we know from Psalm 121 that God doesn't sleep and He doesn't slumber. The judgment is coming and this ought to be a great encouragement to us. I won't spend much time on this because this is my main point next week, verses 4 through 9, which speaks about how God will judge the wicked and how God will protect the righteous. He will do that. In this point though, now here in verse 3, we're talking about the judgment coming upon the wicked false teachers. It's not idle. It's not asleep. It's coming. None will escape his judgment. He'll come. He'll judge. He'll right all wrongs. You don't need to take judgment into your own hands. That's a wonderful thing about the doctrine of the final judgment of God has a wonderful way of minimizing our own need to feel vengeful against people. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And in that day, everything will be made exactly right. We have trusted and believed in Christ to be forgiven because God is just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. And the one who has rejected Christ will be destroyed to his just damnation everything he deserves. And there's something interesting about how the coming judgment is, is joy to righteous people. In fact, that's what Psalm 96 even speaks about. We are to have the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice, and the sea roar, and all it contains, and the field exult, and all that's in it. Then all the trees of forest will shout for joy before the Lord, for He's coming. He's coming to judge the earth. We rejoice in the coming judgment of God because we know that we will be vindicated in Christ. And the evildoers who malign the way of God will be destroyed in the retribution. Same thing in Psalm 98. Let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and all who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and the mountains sing together for the joy before the Lord, for He's coming. He's coming to judge the earth. And those who know and love Christ can rejoice at that day because it's all going to be made right. There's the comfort there of knowing their end. So how do you deal with false prophets? First of all, you be aware of them. Know they exist. Second, you flee from them. Run away from them. Run to the cross. Finally, trust that God's going to deal with them justly in their end. And they get there because they're not trusting in Christ. But things will be different for us in the Judgment Day who believe and trust in Christ. We, we will be, be, be freed. We will be rescued. We will be delivered. Not because of our own righteousness. Not because of the righteousness that God has infused into us. But solely by the grace of, of God in Christ which we have come to know. It's been evidenced by the fruit in our life. The fruit of the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray this morning that you would would help us, even as this is just a small microcosm of how it is that we ought to deal with false teachers. I pray you'd help us with that. I pray especially as we look at this next section, may you encourage our hearts of how you are in sovereign control, even as false teachers parade their teaching throughout the church you're in control and you'll deal with them appropriately and justly and quickly and speedily according to your time. But as Peter tells us now, as things await and things are are slower, he says the Lord is patient and kind, waiting for us to repent. He's patient toward us, not wishing for any of us to perish but for all to come to repentance. So God, if this day finds people even here in this congregation rebelling against You, I pray in Your grace and kindness You'd grant them repentance. You'd give them faith. You would make them new. You would open their eyes. Make them alive to see the glories of Calvary. And for us who see the glories of Christ, may we rejoice in that. And even as we look towards here celebrating the Lord's Supper, may it be a time for us of, of joy and and uh, adoration and um, confession again of our hope and our trust is in Christ. It's not in our own works which we have done. It's all in your mercy. And so God, I, I pray that you would commune with us now in this time of communion. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I invite the men to come and gather over there. I just want to give you one word as we think about the end. As we think about the, the judgment of God and our, our salvation, it says in Revelation chapter seven, beginning of the end. John writes about how after these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying this, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the end of which we look forward to. We look forward to that day when we can cry with the saints, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb because it's He who's purchased us. And throughout the Bible you see God saving many, many times. God is much in the activity of saving because we are much in the need of being saved. And God does that work among us. And that's what we celebrate here at the Lord's Supper. We're celebrating the salvation of God. It's come for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus said on that last day, we took bread, he took the cup, he said, Eat and drink this. (coughs) This is my body. This is my blood. It's been broken, it's been spilled out, it's been poured out for you. And as often as you eat it, do so thinking about the Lord. And we proclaim His coming as we do this. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, before we do this, we ought to examine ourselves. Are you in the faith? Are you trusting in the Lord? Are you harboring known sin in your heart? If you are, confess those, repent of those, and seek Christ. If you're harboring any of those, don't, don't take from the supper this morning, but let it pass. Maybe a time of, of great joy. Andy's going to come and lead us in a song, the Gospel song. I want you even to think about those words. About a holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross he took my sin. By his death I live again. it's the message we celebrate here at the Lord's Supper. So let's rejoice in him.